to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. It's on your large print sheets, but you'll also find it on page 1656. 1656 in your pew Bible. Page 1656. Revelation chapter 2. Reading verses 1 to 7. This is the Word of God. Indeed, it is the Word of Christ. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now if you go just a few miles from here, over towards uh, Turner Field, you will come to a building. On the outside of that building, it says, the perfect church. I've often said, I've often remarked, I'm glad we finally found it. The perfect church. Well, of course, no church is perfect, right? But you see, what we have described for us here in Revelation 2 with regard to the Ephesians is an almost perfect church. It's an almost perfect church, the church in Ephesus. It was founded by perhaps the greatest of the apostles, Paul himself. Some of its early leaders included Timothy and John, it suffered much for the cause of Christ, toiling, laboring, and persevering through it all. Why, this church even held judicial trials in order to discipline false teachers and kick them out of the church. As a matter of fact, Jesus here says, 
that the people could not stand evil men. They couldn't put up with them. But rather, they loved the truth. And yet, and yet, with all that marvelous description, it wasn't a perfect church. Things were not right. It was a church in very grave danger. Christ here, in this passage, was warning that despite the great start, if the church did not repent, it would be no more. Because the Lord Jesus himself would take away the candlestick. Now this sermon is part of a series on the book of Revelation. We've already mentioned in chapter 1 that it is Jesus Christ who has signed, that is to say, given in symbols, this apocalypse, this revelatory book, this apocalyptic book. It's a special type of literature. We'll talk about the apocalypse or we talk more generally about apocalyptic literature. We think of the book of Revelation, we think of Daniel, we think of Ezekiel 1, we think of other places in Scripture with a heavy use of these mysterious symbols. And it is Jesus Christ himself that we are told who has given this revelation and has given it, has signed it, that is to say has given it with signs and symbols. He is revealed in his glory as he walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And then, having seen that overwhelming picture of the Lord Jesus in the midst of these seven candlesticks or lampstands, we now come into chapters 2 and 3. And these two chapters consist of seven letters to very prominent, very important, quite possibly prominent presbyteries, that is to say the regional church, groups of churches in Asia Minor, or what today we would call the country of Turkey. Now Christ, back in chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, revealed himself in a number of ways. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and so forth. And um, he also says, verse 7, verse 18, or verse 17, I am the first and the last. Verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and death, and so forth. And so what is going to happen now as Jesus is going to address these churches directly in chapters 2 and 3. Some of your Bibles may have the, the words of Christ in red. You see all of chapters 2 and 3 are in red if you have a Bible like that. These are the, the words, because we know all the Bible is the word of Christ, but these are, this is recording now, the words that Jesus is speaking directly to these churches. And Christ's self-designation, the way that he is described in chapter 1, will be picked up at the beginning of each of these letters. They're going to, so in other words, there are themes here in chapter 1 
and we're going to see those themes played like a piece of music, like a piece of music. So you have a certain theme, so portions of that theme are going to be played as he addresses the churches here in chapters 2 and 3. Certain phrases consistently appear. The one who overcomes, or he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so that's, we're going to hear those phrases numerous times in these seven letters. But there's another thing to note, and that is that there's a very definite pattern that is followed in almost every case. So he opens, Jesus opens by a salutation, by an address to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Then it talks about his self-designation, his self-designation. Thirdly, his commendation. So he begins by commending, by praising each of the seven churches. Then fourthly, his condemnation. In other words, in five of the seven instances, there are problems in the church. There are problems that need to be dealt with, as we're going to see here, for example, with regard to Ephesus. And fifthly, his Christ warning and threat for those when he had to raise the, uh, the warning, his warning and threat. Sixthly, his exhortation. And finally, his promise. And so that pattern will follow through on almost all of these seven letters. Now, as we look at the city of Ephesus, notice that all of these seven cities in Asia Minor competed to be the first in whatever category. Kind of like the Chamber of Commerce, you know, or the, or the Tourist Bureau. We're the first uh, promoting each city. Ephesus, for example, was promoted as the first of Asia as the landing place of every Roman official. So if you were going to, if you were a Roman official, a high official, and you were going to visit Asia Minor, Ephesus would be where you would come first. It was a major city of, it was a major city of commerce in this region. And it was important religiously and governmentally. It was located on the sea, but also on a major trade route by land. There were two significant coins that tell us this. One showed a merchant ship under a full sail. So children, I want you to think. Maybe you've seen like uh, one of those old clipper ships from uh, the 19th century and in full sail. So that's, there, there's a coin, there was a coin with a picture of a ship like that. Another showed a Roman war vessel propelled by oars. So they didn't have steam back then, of course, to propel, but propelled by oars with the proconsul, high official, first landing at Ephesus. So you see these themes reflected in the coins. Religiously, Ephesus was home of the temple to the goddess Diana. Great is Diana! Ephesus was very similar to one of our major metropolitan areas. It was rich, famous, and important. But 
it was also idolatrous, frivolous, and worldly-minded. There was much wickedness, much immorality, and many social ills in the city. In other words, they had urban problems. But Ephesus had another problem, and that is that the mouth of the river, the caster, caster, C-T-E-R, the caster, the mouth of that river, kept on filling up with silt. Now this is, you may know, that this is one of the problems of the Mississippi River. This is why the Corps of Engineers has to keep on dredging it, has to keep on trying to deepen the, the channel because eventually that silt, all the sand, all the muck, will build up and will tend to, to fill it in. And this, the fact that the caster then kept on filling up with silt caused the original settlement of Ephesus to be moved down towards the sea. But more than that, it meant something else. It meant that laborious, dredging operations had to be undertaken. Now, today, with the Corps of Engineers, you've got these, you know, amazing pieces of equipment and so forth, steam-driven or, or diesel-driven, but that, of course, would not have been the case 2,000 years ago. The pre-Roman kings in this area engaged in extensive engineering operations to keep the harbor open. Tiberius, too, the Caesars, they realized the channel needed to be cleared of sediment. But imagine then all the work that was involved. Here's a commentator, the way he put it. Quote, I want you to think about this. So children, think about this as I'm telling you this. Put this in your mind's eye. The digging, the excavating, the transportation of materials, the bearing of burdens, the hoisting, the hauling up, the dredging, the construction of wharfs for the lading and loading of merchandise, common laborers busy in all directions, reeking with sweat, bespattered with mire or mud or muck. No amount of public meetings, well, let's have a meeting, right? Try to figure this out. No amount of public meetings, gatherings by rich people in posh private clubs, or general indignation and frustration could keep the caster from relentlessly piling up its silt and sediment. This was an ongoing problem for Ephesus. So that's the city. Major city, important city, idolatrous city, one with a very particular problem. The church here, as mentioned, was founded by an apostle, Paul, and could boast of some very noble early leadership. The chapter 19, we read the first half of that today, but in, in Acts chapter 19, the whole city turned into an uproar because of the evangelizing, which led to the loss of revenues for the silversmiths. Why? Because they were making idols for in, in terms of their silversmithing. The first part, of course, we read today, the first 20 verses, very interesting. I just, 
I must say, it's one of the funny, did you catch it? It's one of the funny parts of the Bible where, um, where some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, we exorcise, we cast you out by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Siva, Jewish chief priests who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them. So they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Isn't that a great, great story? Can't you just see the picture? Jesus I know, Paul I know. Who are you? Um, but it, what's interesting as well, notice verse 20. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed, but by definition it's going to stir up trouble. You see, because of the world that hates the gospel, hates God, hates Christ, wants to serve, in this case, these false gods. And so here you have, here you have the, uh, the whole town is in an uproar. By the way, do you think the church is being effective? Yes. So maybe we ought to pray for some uproars in Atlanta. What do you think? Or pray that the church would be effective, but it may cause, if the church is really effective, it will cause an uproar, almost inevitably. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 19. Paul um, spent about three years there in Ephesus and wrote his famous epistle, Ephesians, during his Roman imprisonment. Well, that's all by way of background. And now we come then to the introduction of the immediate text. As we read here in chapter 2 and verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now, last time we suggested that the word angel is, it, it could be, for example, maybe the preacher. It certainly means a messenger. It's not a literal angel. It means a messenger, one who brings the message I suggested that it could be a reference collectively to the elders of the church. But in any case, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Now, why did Jesus say to write? Well, if you want to make sure, this is true with regard to a contract. I mean, you can, you can have a handshake contract. It's binding. But why do you put it in writing so you know exactly what is being said? And so it is here. Put it in writing so that there is no mistake about the message. And then we have the description of the glorious Christ. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. These blazing suns in his right hand. Those are the angels of the seven churches. And of course he is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. My friends, Jesus Christ is in the midst of the church, and when he speaks, she had better listen. Now, next week, we're going to get to the condemnation, and to the warning and promise, but today we're just going to focus on the positive side, that is to say, the commendation. Isn't it interesting? That although Jesus obviously could find a lot of things wrong with us and with these churches, 
he begins by encouraging them. That's how he begins. He begins by commending them. And this is what he says, verse 2. I know your works, your labor, your patience or perseverance. So your works or your deeds. This indicates the practical side of the Christian life. For faith, my friends, without works is dead. It's dead. But not just labor, or not just works or deeds, but also your labor, your toil. And you remember I mentioned about the river Caster and how it had to be dredged all the time? And, you know, this was yucky work. This was, you know, one of those you see on, uh, on TV, you know, one of these dirty jobs. Undoubtedly, many of the Ephesian believers would have been involved in the dredging operations. These operations continued as the authorities realized that constant attention was needed. These men then were quite familiar, not only with the dirtiness of it, but with these back-breaking efforts. It was hard work. And that's the very figure, you see, that Jesus is picking up on here. Even so, the Ephesian church had engaged in labor, in toil, for Christ and his kingdom. It was hard work. But more than that, their perseverance or patience. As Acts chapter 19 reveals, there was every possibility of persecution. And certainly a big city, like many opportunities for temptation and falling into sin. There were red light districts there, undoubtedly. But despite the persecution and the temptations, they had persevered. But not only did they engage in these deeds and toil and perseverance, but notice that they were commended for their opposition to evil. Their opposition to evil. They were not able to stand evil men. With the psalmist, the Ephesians could declare, do we not hate those who hate thee, O Lord? As we just sang from the 139th Psalm, the Ephesian believers loathed, detested, abhorred, hated the wicked men. More than that, not only was that their attitude, but more than that, they discerned and disciplined false apostles. Verse 2, and you have tested those who they say, those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. Now that's what false teachers are. They are liars. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are enemies to the church. They are emissaries. They are, they are messengers of Satan. They are liars following Satan who is the murderer and liar from the beginning. And so they had discerned and disciplined these false teachers. By the way, the early church had a problem with all sorts of false teachers 
trying to undermine the true gospel. You know, we think back, oh, this is the first century. This is when you have the apostles. Everything must have been wonderful. It must have been the perfect church. But in point of fact, that wasn't the case at all. Because Satan has always been active in trying to destroy the people of God. Satan has always been active trying to undermine, trying to destroy. There were two, at least two, basic false teachings that had to be dealt with. And we might say three in terms of Gnosticism. But right now, let me just mention two. The Judaizers and the Libertines. Who were the Judaizers? These were people who said, oh yes, we believe in Christ, but you have to keep the Old Testament law, as per particularly the ceremonial law, like as in circumcision. And ultimately, you see, it turned the gospel into something that was based on works. And so the Judaizers, the Judaizers, but then the Libertines, the Libertines, that is to say those who said, let's just do whatever. You know, we, we, uh, we're saved by grace, and therefore you don't have to worry about keeping the law. We're saved by grace, and therefore you can sin as you please. These uh, particularly are the Nicolaitans. And so the early church then had a problem with all sorts of false teachers trying to subvert the true gospel. Indeed, in his farewell address, Paul warned the elders about wolves in sheep's clothing. He warned them in Acts chapter 20, his farewell address to the Ephesians, to the Ephesian elders. I won't see your face again. They wept and fell on his neck as he said that. But he warned them, from your own midst, there are going to be false teachers that are going to arise. And here in Ephesus then, Ephesus, the church, had tried these false apostles in court, that is to say church court, found them guilty and kicked them out. They had found them liars, particularly with regard to spiritual matters. They had tried them, put them to the test, and used judicial process to demonstrate the false nature of their teaching, and to demonstrate it to the world, you see. So listen behind closed doors. It was demonstrating to the world that this teaching of theirs was false. They hated the deeds, the Ephesians hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, a wicked group of people. The Ephesian church was commended for hating the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans. The Lord himself declares here, verse 6, that I myself, I myself hate their deeds. I myself hate their deeds. We find this throughout Scripture in a number of places, that theme, and I'll just, I'll just refer to one or two here. Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. Jeremiah 44 and verse 4. Jeremiah 44 and verse 4. However, 
I have sent to you all my servants the prophets. This is the Lord speaking. I have sent to you all my servants the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, Oh, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ear to turn from their wickedness to burn no incense to other gods. So my fury and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. They are wasted and desolate as it is this day. And so Christ commends the church. Practically perfect. Deeds, toil, perseverance, patience, opposition to evil. And yet, as we will see, Lord willing, next week, it's not really a perfect church. Because in trying to be so precise theologically, in terms of discipline, theology, and so forth, they had not just lost their first love, they had left their first love. And that, of course, my friends, would make all the difference in the world. Well, today I have three points of application. Number one, we must be discerning with regard to spiritual matters. We must be discerning with regard to spiritual matters. There is a correct doctrine. And whatever con contradicts that doctrine is false and wrong. Whatever contradicts that correct doctrine is false and wrong. The false doctrines are evil, evil in their effects, and evil in that they are in opposition to God. That's the first point. Number two, we must engage in kingdom work. We must engage in kingdom work. Good works are good things. And we are to labor and toil for God. And so we must engage in kingdom work. And sometimes it's hard work. Many times it's hard work. And yet we must do so. Akin to, similar to that, in, but in a spiritual way, that back-breaking, dirty work of dredging the Caister River. But finally, number three, remember, remember that the only works which God accepts are those that are done in Christ. The only works that God accepts are those that are done in Christ. 1 Peter 2, verse 5, Peter says, offering up spiritual sacrifices and at least by implication, not just spiritual in the sense of our human spirit, but also that which the spirit gives, that which the spirit creates in the heart. Hebrews 13, 20 and 22, the, one of the benedictions, make you perfect in every good work. Matthew 24, verse 21, well done, good and faithful servant. But my friends, the good works done by the unregenerate ultimately are not good at all. They're good in one sense, in the sense that it's better to help the little lady across the street rather than to throw her in front of the bus. It's better, obviously. It's better to help people, to show 
compassion to people than it is to try to uh, destroy them, obviously. Yet why is it that those good works by the unregenerate are not accepted by God? Well, first of all, because they are not done for God's glory. They are not done for God's glory. If you're unregenerate today, you are not going to do things for God's glory. You're going to do them for your own. Even, even if you don't have a hospital named after you or a library as some of the robber barons did in the, from the Gilded Age and so forth, what are you doing? Patting yourself on the back. So God's not going to accept that. It's not done for God's glory. And furthermore, not done out of a heart purified by faith. This is why in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, in Hebrews chapter 11, we read, By faith, verse 4, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. So by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. And verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. My friends, do not depend, do not rely upon your good works to get you into heaven or to make you acceptable before God. Not going to happen. God will not accept your so-called good works. You come to God first by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then by His grace and by His Spirit working in you, then you're able to offer the good works, the good things, for the glory of God. Please, please children, please older people, don't forget this warning. The only works which God accepts are those that are done in Christ. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? Our Father, we do thank Thee for the fact that Thou hast called us unto Thyself. We pray, Lord, for any here who do not know Christ. We pray, Father, that Thou wouldst give them restlessness. Make them uncomfortable. That they can come to Thee so that they can embrace Christ as Savior and Lord. Lord, upon those that are thy children, may thy blessing rest. Be pleased to accept even our good works, done not for our justification, but done for the glory of God. We pray in Jesus' name.